The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. C. diff, spores, and more is brought to you by Clorox Healthcare, trusted solutions for your infection prevention needs. Visit us on the web at CloroxHealthCare.com. Welcome to C. diff, spores, and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here's your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome and thank you for joining us today on C. diff, Sports and More Global Broadcasting Network. We would like to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare, for making this program possible. Visit the Clorox Healthcare website to learn more about their products, keeping everyone safer. CloroxHealthcare.com forward slash C. diff radio. Today our guests are Dr. Hudson Garrett, Jr., Dr. Carl Flatley, and Sherry Dornberger, here to discuss sepsis and how... It knows no boundaries. It can happen to anyone. We welcome our first guest, Dr. Garrett, here to discuss sepsis and the role of healthcare provider team in recognition, management, and response to prevent the impending crisis. Welcome to the show, Dr. Garrett. Thank you very much, Nancy, for having me today. Uh, well, we're, it's a pleasure to have you here today, and thank you so much for making time for us. And we won't from detain. Um, I know I have a lot of everyone has a lot of questions for you, but um, where should the recognition of sepsis start within the healthcare facility initially? So that's a great question, and and I think we see this kind of evolving over time. Um, when you think about the traditional patient that may come in with a fever or other signs of infection, a lot of that recognition would simply start in the emergency department, where clinicians would rapidly assess your vital signs, do some laboratory studies, and quite frankly, just assess you in general. A good clinical assessment is one of the most invaluable tools we have, and, and most of that actually starts in the emergency department. We do, however, see that a lot of times sepsis is also caught in the intensive care unit after that um, patient is admitted to the ICU. So we really need to work across disciplines and boundaries to ensure that we're catching it as quickly as possible because we know that recognition is tied to a more positive outcome. So the more rapid that we can intervene and actually do aggressive treatment, we're going to have the better chance of saving those, those, those patients. Wonderful. And, and Dr. Garrett, where should the sepsis protocol be activated and by whom? Um, you know, I think that's one of the things we've learned over the last couple of years where it used to be a more physician-driven protocol, and now some of the best hospitals here um, in the U.S. especially are actually making it nurse-driven, where the clinician that is triaging that patient and really responsible for their care from a nursing standpoint is looking at the vital signs, communicating that to the provider team, and they're making a very, very quick decision based on an algorithm that is available um, through certain programs like the Surviving Sepsis Bundle to aggressively intervene with these patients. And I think that's one of the things that is special about sepsis is that it's not something that you can wait for an hour. Um, we know that those rapid interventions are directly tied back to, again, improving the outcome for the patient. So it really can be a, a nurse-physician-driven uh, protocol. 
Wonderful. And yeah, I totally agree with you there. And and Dr. Garrett, in healthcare settings across the globe, how critical of an issue is sepsis? You know, I wish I could say it was not a, a, a big issue, but it is, and it's a growing issue. Um, when we look at septicemia and sepsis in general, you know, for our listening audience, these are really serious bloodstream infections that are rapidly evolving within the patient's body. Um, and so, you know, you can get these from other infections from like the skin or the lungs or the abdomen or urinary tract, but we do know that hospital rates specifically for sepsis continue to rise um, even though we've actually put a lot of evidence into studying sepsis, looking at improving outcomes and the specific protocols. Um, a couple of key facts that I'd like to mention, I think the first is that when you get older, your risk for sepsis goes up. And I think that's important as we look at people um, like long-term care facilities, post-acute care, which I know Sherry has got a lot of expertise in that particular area. Um, patients that are hospitalized are actually more ill than patients um, that don't have sepsis. And so when you look at a sepsis patient compared to a non-sepsis patient, the resources, um, the outcomes, everything is, is, is much more severe um, associated with that. Length of stay also goes up. And so when you think about that from a quality and a patient safety, safety perspective, um, these patients take a tremendous amount from the healthcare system. They need more nursing time, more physician time, more laboratory studies. Um, there's just a lot of different things associated with the delivery of care with these patients, including the length of stay. And, and sadly, I think one of the most um, impressive statistics about the impact of sepsis is that if you're hospitalized for sepsis, you're eight times more likely to die during your hospitalization. So I think that really is going to speak volumes to the information Sherry is going to sh share with us about a more patient-centered perspective of what that true impact of sepsis is. Exactly. And when we talk about our C. diff patients also who are hospitalized and usually seniors, um, they can go into, from the C. diff right into the sepsis. Absolutely. And, and I think that's an important um, comment that you make is that when patients have other infectious comorbidities, it certainly increases the risk exponentially of developing sepsis, but more importantly, of having a bad outcome, including death. Exactly. Um, well, Dr. Garrett, what are the most common symptoms that a healthcare provider should look for when evaluating a patient for sepsis? So, it, you know, I think there's a good way to think about this from an acronym standpoint. And when you think of the term sepsis, you know, the S stands for shivering and fever or, or feeling very cold. And so the patient's body temperature is, is not normal, not just when we check it, but they feel it. Um, so I think that's the first piece. The E can stand for extreme pain or general discomfort. Um, and this can sometimes be challenging to diagnose when we think about patients that might have had a motor vehicle accident, for example, and now they're saying they're in pain, but it, is it truly related to the motor vehicle accident? Um, and so it can make the diagnostic component of this very difficult. The P stands for pale or discolored skin. Um, when we look at skin and we do a true good nursing assessment, it can speak volumes to our ability to recognize quickly and intervene for these patients. The S stands for sleepy. Um, a lot of times these patients are very difficult to wake or confused. Um, we see this very, very often, especially in long-term long care and post-acute care settings, where patients may have chronic urinary tract infections. Um, I know you mentioned C. difficile as an example. And sometimes their mental status is hard to um, obtain because maybe it's, it's changed from the baseline or we don't know what the baseline is. So sometimes this particular part of the sepsis uh, symptom recognition can be very, very challenging. The next is I, and, and, and I think this is one of the ones that we have to pay the closest attention to. When the patient simply says to us as a healthcare professional, I feel like I might die. Um, and I know that sounds extremely dramatic, but 
there are many patients that actually provide that feedback to their healthcare providers, and we simply don't take action on it. And when a patient, or more specifically, even their family says to me, hey, my relative does not look right, um, I take that probably more seriously than I do any laboratory value or physical assessment I could do, because that family member knows more than anyone else what the normal state of that patient is. And I think that that's important that we listen very carefully to our patients. And then last, the S stands for shortness of breath. Um, and specifically with patients that have respiratory infections like pneumonia, um, these are symptoms that we want to pay close attention to. So that just gives us a nice, simple way to think about those common symptoms related to sepsis. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. And I'm sure our clinicians out there listening in are grateful for that information also. And Dr. Garrett, uh, can sepsis be transmitted between patients in a healthcare facility? You know, this is a common question that I'm asked. And, you know, really the general answer is no. Uh, sepsis is not a transmittable infection in the true sense of it. So it's not like influenza where someone coughs into the air, it's going to be transmitted. Uh, sepsis is contained within the bloodstream. And so certainly there's, you know, very deadly bacteria that are circulating there. But when we exercise standard precautions, um, we're certainly going to protect ourselves. And I think it's important that clinicians remember the importance of standard precautions and go back to the CDC guidelines for isolation that are available on the CDC website that really guide us in what those best practices are, the use of gloves, gown, um, certainly if we need it. Now, I will say that if we're going to do an invasive procedure where there's going to be a high likelihood of blood exposure, then we're going to need to think about other personal protective equipment to protect ourselves. But, you know, the, the nice thing is that this is no different than any other type of infectious disease that we would be treating. Um, and so it's not like we have to do anything special for the treatment of sepsis as far as protecting ourselves other than to follow those good isolation recommendations that are available from the CDC. But it's not a generally transmissible infection to other people. It's not that a healthcare provider is going to contract sepsis from a patient or a patient might transmit it to another, another patient. Well, that's good to know for the facilities out there and the, the clinicians taking care of these patients. And um, can sepsis happen in a healthcare environment, such as a long-term care facility, inpatient hospital, or a home care setting? So another great question, and I have this kind of personal philosophy that germs have no boundaries. Um, you know, they, they don't have a border that they stay within. And, and the same is true for the correlation with the healthcare delivery system. Um, if we look at colleagues like Sherry Dornberger, who's uh, obviously a guest here today, I look at the, the unique patient population that not only does she represent professionally, but she was a part of as a patient. And, you know, post-acute care settings are one of the most um, high-risk areas for a lot of different reasons. You know, part of it is the staffing ratio is very, very different than acute care. Um, long-term acute or long-term facilities uh, typically do not have a dedicated infection preventionist. You know, that's one of the things that organizations like Nadana are trying to change and really create a standard of care for infection prevention for post-acute care. And, and more importantly, a lot of patients outside of hospitals have other comorbidities. They may have those chronic urinary tract infections, so they're on low-dose antibiotics. Maybe they have a history of C. difficile. Um, and so we have to look at the whole patient picture to really understand what the risk factor is. But, you know, we've seen sepsis in outpatient facilities. We've seen people in home care with sepsis. Um, you know, I think about people that might be receiving home infusion therapy. And, you know, they're not monitored the same way that we would be able to monitor you in an intensive care setting. Um, you know, we can get an instant alert for your blood pressure. We can get laboratory values on you in a hospital. There's a lot of tools and technologies and resources that we have in a hospital that we don't have 
in post-acute care settings like long-term care, um, and, and specifically in the home care environment where we don't have any of those tools and resources. So I think it's important to, to really remember that sepsis can be found anywhere, at any time, in any patient. And it's important for us as healthcare professionals, but even more so as patients and advocates to think and really speak up for ourselves. As a healthcare professional, we have to speak up to our, our physician and, and nurse practitioner and PA colleagues if we think something's wrong. But patients also need to feel very, very comfortable and empowered to speak up in a safe environment to us as healthcare professionals or their families and say, I don't think something's right with grandma. How do we act on this? We need to really use that rapid response technology that exists out there. Okay, and thank you, Dr. Garrett, for that. And before we go to break now, um, Dr. Garrett, can you tell us what is the CDC doing to combat sepsis and improve survival of patients with this condition? So CDC has done a a tremendous amount of work in this, and I think one of the great resources uh, that CDC brings to the table is aggregation of best practices. Um, They have a unique ability to not only create best practices, but really create a repository for sharing those. And so CDC is specifically committed to preventing infections that could lead to sepsis and also promoting early recognition and, and, and access to medical care. When you look at CDC's mission as an organization, you know, they fight conditions that people have never even heard of. And then some of the most prevalent conditions like HIV or influenza, uh, they're much more well known for. But they've got five key areas that they're focusing on. Really, the first is, is increasing sepsis awareness and building a coalition. And I think it's important that that coalition consists of healthcare professionals, patient advocates, um, certainly the patients themselves, and really looking across disciplines to do that. The second piece is early recognition. Um, And it goes back to your your last question about its access across all of the medical care delivery system. So it's acute care, post-acute care, home care, um, all those different places, um, so that we can really get to early recognition, which we know will improve the patient outcome. The third thing that CDC is doing is specifically scientifically studying risk factors for sepsis. And they're not doing this alone. They brought the best of the best experts from across the world and looking at the scientific literature, clinical guidelines, as well as their amazing laboratory resources that they have um, at CDC to combine all of this information to form what are those best practices that healthcare professionals can really be confident in will provide the patient the best possible outcome. The next one, which I think is very unique um, to CDC, is that they've developed tracking mechanisms to look at not only sepsis, but all healthcare-associated infections. And much of this is captured in their National Healthcare Safety Network system, which is the nation's um, public surveillance system, if you will, for infectious diseases as well as other healthcare-associated um, issues. And last but not least is preventing those infections that lead to sepsis. Um, I think that that's so important when you look at their um, sepsis awareness campaign. It's a multi-year strategy that is looking at what are those various conditions from an infection standpoint that have the highest risk for causing sepsis? How can we prevent those patients from ever going there? Um, and again, that's, that's not just a CDC-only activity. It's a whole coalition of partners with the shared mental model of reducing sepsis and improving outcomes. Um, so I think that that's important. And giving hospitals and, and healthcare professionals more tools and resources, you know, not just on recognition, but also from a laboratory standpoint, and helping us understand the epidemiology of sepsis. What are those mo- the most common organisms, for example? Is it Staph aureus? Is it MRSA? Um, you know, is it some of these new CRE-type strains that are carbapenem resistant? Understanding the microbiology of sepsis is equally as important as the treatment because it gives us a good idea. 
And I think last but not least, Nancy, they're also looking at other infectious disease strategies, increasing vaccination rates, looking at basic infection control principles and practices. You know, hand hygiene is kind of a lost art where we only have about 40 to 50% national compliance, but there's so much more that we could do. And then also looking at high-risk patients, those like oncology patients, diabetics, um, bone marrow transplant, you know, those are those really high-risk patients that we have to have special approaches for sometimes and work with those collaborative partners like the Oncology Nurses Society as an example. Um, and so CDC, as you can see, is doing a ton around this area, and they will continue to engage with partners, scientific experts, as well as patient advocates to fight this fight against sepsis. Well, Dr. Garrett, we thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing this outstanding information on sepsis and the role of the healthcare provider team in recognition, management, and response to prevent the impending crisis. Thank you again, and we are going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue learning more about sepsis, knows no boundaries, it can happen to anyone with Dr. Flatley. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The CDF Foundation offers global community support sessions. CDF can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C. difficile prevention, treatments, and environmental safety, as well as learn about upcoming events, teleconferences, and support sessions. To register for a session, call the CDF Foundation at 1-844-4CDF. 1-844-367-2343 or visit us on the web at cdifffoundation.org Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. diff, spores, and more, and we welcome our listeners joining us today. It's a pleasure to introduce our guest, Dr. Flatley, who is here to discuss sepsis and how it knows no boundaries and it can happen to anyone. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Flatley. Hi, Nancy. Good to be here. 
Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us here today. And I know that there's a lot of information to discuss, and um, we thank you for uh, having this information available to all of us here. So um, can you start by explaining what is sepsis? Sepsis is uh, it's the number one unmet medical need in the U.S. We are losing people at the rate of 2747 jets. That's about 700 people a day in the United States. And we know now, based on early therapy and recognition, that we can, that at least 80% of those deaths are preventable. And that doesn't include all the people who are disabled. It's an incredible, horrendous health care problem. Exactly. It certainly is. And we understand that. And, Doctor, can you tell us how, um, how prevalent it really is? Sepsis by itself is the number one cause of death in children under the age of five in the world. That is, we lose about six million people, children, under the age of five in the world. In the U.S. alone, we lose 4,400 people, young kids, uh, early on. So it's very prevalent, especially in the very young, very old. I actually lost my daughter at age 23 because of misdiagnosis and maltreatment, and I've had sepsis myself, so anyone can get it. Yes, that's so true, and I am, we all um, share our condolences with you for the loss of your daughter, and from her loss, you have turned around and, and created something amazing worldwide to get the word out and raise awareness, and we thank you so much for that. Well, I mean, 12 years ago, there was nothing on the CDC website. I went to CDC, NIH. There was no World Sepsis Day. There was no Sepsis Awareness Month. Uh, there was no sepsis.org, which is the uh, website that I would encourage your listeners to go to. We're, in my opinion, the go-to sepsis organization, and there's a lots of information on there that I wouldn't be able to give you unless I had 10 hours. Exactly. We understand that. And, Dr. Flatley, what are the symptoms that um, people can recognize of sepsis? So there's... The main ones, I, I would say, are temperature, pulse, and respiration. But there's a whole bunch of them, and it's, you need to be cognizant of the different ones. If you're not urinating, it's a problem. Uh, you may be cold, confused, uh, have chills. Your temperature could be high or low. Your blood pressure could be high or low. Uh, your respiratory and heart rate will go up dramatically. So when you piece all these together and you feel, and victims have told me it's like, having the worst case of flu you've ever had, like you're going to die. You need to get a sepsis screening immediately. Call 911, go to the ER. Time counts. For every hour of delay in giving antibiotics, your chance of dying goes up 8%. Exactly. And thank you for sharing that information, Dr. Flatley. And can can you explain to our listeners how sepsis is prevented the best prevention, and there's a number of things, is, first of all, try not to get infectious, which is, of course, impossible. But if you get any kind of wound, I think it's really important to realize that if you get, you can get sepsis from any infection. It could be a tattoo. It could be pneumonia. It could be meningitis. It could be a pierced ear. It could be a mosquito bite. Any infection, do not take them lightly. Hand hygiene, that was mentioned previously, very important. Keep up your vaccination. Flu and pneumonia are some of the the most prominent causes of sepsis, so get those vaccinations and see your doctor if you continue to have problems with some sort of 
minor, quote, minor infection. Okay, and doctor, how is sepsis treated? You treat it, first of all, you have to have the early recognition. And the current therapy now is if you give antibiotics and fluids in the first hour, you have an 80% chance of surviving it. But at first, you have to identify the, the correct bacteria. So at first, you may get broad-spectrum antibiotics until they do cultures and tests to figure out exactly what bug it is. But in 30% of the cases, it's hard to even tell where it came from. So it's a difficult problem, but if you wait to get in, it's, it's not only difficult, it can be deathly. Okay. And we thank you for sharing that information, Doctor. And Doctor, at this time, um, before we go to break, can you share with our global listeners how they can learn more about your organization and other organizations raising awareness and helping others? Yes. Uh, when I looked into this, again, as I said, 12 years ago, there was no website. There was no advocacy group no survivors groups, but if you go to sepsis.org, again, we've been working on this. We've got great partners. Uh, we get better every year at getting the information out or there's going to be a change on our website, but go to sepsis.org. And if you have any questions specifically, I mean, it's got my phone number on there. You can call me directly. This is what I do. I'm a, a dentist by trade, but uh, now sepsis is what I do. So more survive. Exactly. And we can't thank you enough for all that you and your partners and your staff are doing to help others and to help raise awareness. And um, the CD Foundation joins you shoulder to shoulder. And we um, appreciate, you know, working with you to raise awareness. And um, we thank you. You're so welcome. We thank you. And thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Flatley, and for, you know, being on our program today and sharing this important information. Do you have any closing comments you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, Just hug your loved ones because you never know what might happen to them. Yes, exactly. We understand. And thank you so much, Dr. And we are going to we are going to pause right now for a short commercial break, and when we return, we will continue learning more about sepsis knows no boundaries. It can happen to anyone. With Sherry Dornberger, a survivor and clinician. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Join us on September 20th in Atlanta, Georgia for the fourth annual International Raising C. diff Awareness Conference and Health Expo. Visit the C. diff Foundation website at cdifffoundation.org for event details or contact the C. diff Foundation at 919-201-1512 for additional information. Again, the website is cdifffoundation.org. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. 
Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. Dip Spores and More, and we welcome our listeners joining us today. It's a pleasure to introduce our guest, Sherry Dornberger, and reintroduce Dr. Hudson Garrett, Jr., back to the show, here to discuss sepsis, uh, both a patient's aspect of sepsis, life before and beyond, along with uh, the recognition, uh, healthcare provider team, and recognition management and response to prevent the impending crisis with Dr. Garrett. Thank you, both of you, for being with us today. Dr. Garrett, I'm going to uh, recircle around with you and I ask you more questions about the healthcare provider team. Uh, are there standardized tools to assist clinicians in evaluating incoming patients for sepsis? There are. There's a variety of different tools, and probably one of the best um, resources is cdc.gov forward slash sepsis, or as Dr. Flatley mentioned, sepsis.org is a great resource as well for both patients and healthcare professionals. Um, What I really like about the CDC website in particular is that it has a summary of not just the recognition tools, but more specifically treatment recommendations as well and the external links to those various programs. But the surviving um, sepsis bundles are probably the most prevalent that are used by healthcare professionals to guide their um, evaluation process for patients with suspected or confirmed sepsis. Well, thank you, Dr. Garrett. And um, can you tell us what evidence-based clinical guidelines exist to guide clinicians in providing the most effective care to suspected or confirmed sepsis patients? Sure. So like many other infectious disease issues, there are a multitude of different guidelines. Um, As I mentioned before in the previous question, the surviving sepsis campaign is probably the best place to go. Um, it is certainly the more evidence-based um, recommendations that exist specifically for healthcare professionals. And it also gives some great resources as far as education and training. Um, there's additional recommendations and, and summaries and tools available through places like the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which has a severe sepsis bundle. Um, and then training, depending upon your discipline, is available through the Society for Critical Care Medicine, the Association of Critical Care Nurses, um, certainly CDC, as well as Medscape. And again, um, one of the the best resources I could share, especially with their healthcare professionals, is cdc.gov forward slash sepsis. There's also some amazing resources for patients um, available on that website as well as sepsis.org. Well, thank you for sharing that information. That's very helpful. And um, Dr. Garrett, earlier you mentioned that the high risk are are our geriatric seniors uh, population. Uh, Besides that, besides that population, are there any uh, other patients likely to develop sepsis? So we really have to think about it from a um, comorbidity standpoint. So any patient that um, has infection already is going to be at, at higher risk for sepsis, certainly. But other things like a cancer patient where they're immunocompromised is going to put them at high risk for that as well. And I, I always am somewhat hesitant to talk about high-risk patients alone because I think sometimes as healthcare professionals, we may tend to focus or zero in 
on those individuals. And I really try to look at each patient as an individual and also do good clinical assessment. And I think, unfortunately, and I think Sherry would agree with this, we've sort of lost our good clinical assessment skills sometimes. And we need to go back to the basics of medical and nursing care and look and feel our patients and really understand what is going on with them medically, but more specifically, you know, what are our, what is the patient trying to tell us? Um, even patients that can't speak can tell us a story if we truly do a good focused clinical assessment that's routine um, and repeated. I think that's one of the things that is very important with sepsis recognition and management is continuous monitoring of those patients. They need the um, most uh, dedicated medical support system that we can possibly provide in order to increase their chance for survival. Exactly. And what can be done to mitigate risk to these vulnerable patient populations? You know, I think it, it, you got to look at it from two different perspectives. Um, if we look at it from the most important perspective, which is the patient's um, lens, uh, we need to make sure it's safe for patients and their families to speak up. We need to create that culture as healthcare professionals where it is absolutely okay as well as encouraged to talk to us and say, I don't think something's right with grandma or with my father or with my son. Something is not right. I feel like I need to, to really activate that. And I think that's where the concept of a rapid response team comes into play. And we've seen tremendous success where facilities are using rapid response teams that are activated not only by the healthcare team, but even more importantly by the patients, um, where you can actually call your own rapid response or a family member can. And it really is a validation of, yes, we're listening. And more importantly, we're going to respond with the appropriate medical resources to take care of this. Um, and so I think that that's from a patient perspective. As healthcare professionals, we need to really do a good job of looking at our laboratory values, recognizing our vital signs. And I think one of the big challenges with sepsis is sometimes the vital signs may not go as quickly as you might think. Um, and so that patient is going into a compensated shock where their body is trying to overcome this infection and adjust the vital signs. And unfortunately, by the time the vital signs go down the tubes, it may be a little too late in order to, to respond. And I think if you listen to what Dr. Flatley talked about, that early intervention is so important in survival rates. Um, as healthcare professionals, we need to really do a better job of assessing early recognition as well as monitoring and treating these patients aggressively. And that takes an entire team from the emergency department to the intensive care patients, um, as well as our colleagues that are maybe floor clinicians that are taking care of patients that might become septic. You know, that's really where we need to have an uh, inter-facility transport where we can get them into the highest level of care possible, which is in most cases the intensive care setting. Exactly. And thank you so much for sharing all that, and Dr. Garrett. And can patients, they have a better survival rate with prompt recognition and aggressive treatment? Uh, they do. So, you know, the more that we can act on the potential for sepsis uh, quickly, the, the better their outcome is going to be. And a lot of this depends on the clinician's ability to not only, again, recognize patient vital signs and their general condition, looking at skin color, you know, is the patient diaphoretic or sweaty as an example, but then matching that up with the relevant laboratory studies so that we can immediately act on these particular um, opportunities where we can jump in headfirst and really treat these patients aggressively because, you know, sepsis is not just going to respond to fluid resuscitation. It's much more than that. And it takes a very complex system in order for us to activate it. And again, as I mentioned earlier um, in today's program, it's, it's very resource inten uh, intensive. And so we need to look specifically at what resources do we have, what resources will we need, and how can we effectively manage that patient to get them the best possible outcome, which is a full recovery. 
Exactly. And we thank you so much for all of this information, Dr. Garrett, with the role of the healthcare provider team in recognition, management, and response to prevent the impending crisis. And w- joining you is Sherry Dornberger, who is a clinician and a C. diff and a sepsis survivor. And Sherry is going to discuss patient aspects of sepsis, life before and beyond. Welcome to the show, Sherry. Oh, thank you, Nancy. Oh, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. <laughs> and if you don't mind uh, sharing your information with our global listeners about what effects does the sepsis have on the patient long term? Well, they're doing more and more studies on sepsis because they originally thought, you know, oh, when we cure this person, if we're able to cure them, then they're free to go on their merry way and they're not going to have any problems. What they actually found out is people with sepsis often have post-traumatic stress. From everything that they went through trying to survive the sepsis, they need to now be looked at for post-traumatic stress. A lot of people that, um, you know, have it, have, it, have it for years. I mean, you, you look at sepsis and you say, well, they don't have a temperature, you know, they're doing much better. But, for instance, for me, I lost both of my feet, the tip of my tongue, the back of my head, and 19 feet of my intestines because of sepsis. So that's something that I will never get over. I will live with that the duration of my life. So I've had to make changes in my normal routine, so to speak, every day to be able to function in my new post-sepsis way. So I, I really think that caregivers need to look at someone and, you know, because they had sepsis five years ago, don't assume that everything is all hunky-dory and they're back to normal. That's so true. And, and thank you so much, Harry, for sharing your personal experience and what you have done um, and how you've gotten through this, this sepsis. Um, anything else that you are uh, having to adjust to uh, with your personal experience and surviving sepsis as a patient? Um, there's, there's lots, um, unfortunately. Um, I also have a colostomy, and it's funny. When you're in nursing school, and a lot of the cl- clinicians that are nurses can probably relate to this, you know, and you go through and they're teaching you about mono. Well, suddenly everybody in your class feels like they have mono, And then when they get to uh, thyroid cancer, everybody's going around feeling their thyroids. Well, everyone agrees in nursing class, the thing that you never want to end up with is a colostomy. When I woke up from the 18-day coma, I had three colostomies. I had an ileostomy, a colostomy, and a rectal stump because I had not enough intestine living to put it all back together. So then also because they were trying to save me and gave me pressors to take the blood from my extremities and feed my organs because I was in multifunction organ problems, Um, they wanted to save my heart, kidneys, lungs, liver, brain. So they gave me these medicine. Well, unfortunately, they gave me too many of them and they stopped the circulation totally to my feet. So my feet were black to my ankles. I had to wait for them to demarcate, and that when they demarcated is where they did the amputations. So I've had amputations of both feet. 
also because they did not think I was going to live. The nurses gave care to the residents, I guess more like the squeaky wheels, so to speak. Um, I was just there in a coma, so there was nothing they thought they could do for me. No one did mouth care. So the ventilator tube that was in my mouth for 18 days ate through the center of my tongue and ate the end of my tongue off also. So it took me nine months of speech therapy to learn to even say my name again. I couldn't swallow. I had a feeding tube because of the tongue problems. So I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't drink. All I wanted was a cup of tea. If you ever wanted a cup of tea so bad, but it took me five months to be able to have that cup of tea. And I had a 14 inch hole in my abdomen. So I couldn't sit up for a year. I was a year and a week in the hospital, seven months of that in an ICU, and then six months at a rehab center following that. And I chose my own facility to return to. I was the director of nursing at a 286-bed long-term CCRC, Continuum Care Retirement Community. I chose my facility to go back to because I always thought that I always I I did excellent education to my staff, I thought. And if I was going to get the best care any place, why go to someone else's facility when I knew that my staff would take very good care of me? So I got admitted to my own facility for seven months and had outstanding care. Well, Sherry, all we can say is the trauma that you have endured uh, and the trauma, the traumatic experience and the trauma your body has endured um, from sepsis is, it's just, I'm speechless. Um, but you know, you're here and that's a blessing. And right now we're going to just, we're going to pause for a break uh, and take a break and a commercial break. When we return, we're going to bring Sherry back on and continue discussing the patient aspects of sepsis life before and beyond. Thank you so much. We'll be right back after these important messages. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. To help support the CDF Foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate or call toll free 1 844 4CDIF. That's 1 844 367 2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. 
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to C. diff, spores, and more, and we welcome our listeners joining us today. We thank our guests, Dr. Hudson Garrett, Jr., and Dr. Carl Flatney and Sherry Dornberger for all being here today. We reintroduce you to Sherry Dornberger, RN, um, to discuss patient aspects of sepsis, life before and beyond. Welcome back, Sherry. Thanks, Nancy. Pleasure to be here. Well, we appreciate you being here so much. And Sherry, before the commercial break, we were discussing um, your personal experience with surviving sepsis as a patient. Um, May we go on to ask you, what advice uh, can you provide healthcare providers in understanding the critical nature of sepsis and its impact on a patient? For all of our colleagues out there, I can't stress enough knowing the symptoms of sepsis and knowing how critical it is to treat it now. Don't pass it off to another shift coming on. Don't wait for somebody else to come on to look at the patient. Report the symptoms that you're finding now. And the other thing, for those who take care of the elderly, whether they're in the hospital or in a post-acute facilities, just remember that not all of the time the elderly's patient's temperature will go up. Nine times out of 10, their temperature will go lower than normal. So don't always look for a high temp as the sign of sepsis. I also encourage all of my colleagues out there to, uh, you know, think about if they're not already doing it, having consistent assignments at their facilities. For those elderly folks that we have in the facilities, consistent assignment is really important because those healthcare um, caregivers will be able to recognize slight changes in their residents. They might know that Sally always eats a whole bowl of cream of wheat in the morning and suddenly she's not, or her color is off a little bit. It's the little tiny signs and symptoms that lead you to be able to diagnose sepsis quickly, effectively, and have the person live. Unfortunately, in long-term care, between 900,000 and 3 million residents a year get diagnosed with sepsis. And of those residents, about 30% die. So it's not like we're talking a little number here. We're talking huge numbers. And because of our residents having comorbidities and multi-diagnosis, those symptoms of shivering or pain or sleepiness or I feel like I might die are extremely important to make sure that if it's the nurse practitioner or the physician, somebody knows those, you call 911, you get that resident out to a higher acuity of care and get it taken care of. Otherwise, you might not have that opportunity. I also encourage all of you 
to make sure because turnover in facilities is, you know, usually pretty high, please don't think that if you've in-serviced on sepsis or C. diff once that it's good for a year. It's not. You need to repeat it at least quarterly. And the one thing that I stress the absolute most is that gloves do not protect everyone. Because someone sticks on a pair of gloves, they suddenly think they don't need to wash their hands or use an alcohol gel. Gloves gives us a sense false of security, and I need to make sure that all of my colleagues, no matter where you work, that you practice good hand hygiene and you make sure that the colleagues around us also practice good hand hygiene. That can make the difference between life and death for a C. diff, a sepsis, or just a person with the common cold. So I really like to stress that. Well, thank you so much, Sherry, for sharing all that information with colleagues and uh, fellow coworkers and provide the healthcare providers uh, with all this great information. And no, you can't stress it enough. And we completely understand your words. And Sherry, what should patients do if they suspect that their loved ones are, is, you know, going into sepsis or developing sepsis? Well, if they're at home, obviously they should call 911 immediately. Don't wait. If they really suspect that it's sepsis, 911 is their best answer. Get them shipped out to a facility that's going to be able to provide acute care for them. If they're in a long-term care facility, they need to bring that to the nurse in charge immediately. And for, um, you know, those staff, those frontline caregivers, if a family member reports to you that they think that their family member has sepsis, they need to report that to their immediate supervisor as fast as anything. Don't wait to finish the bath. Don't wait to finish whatever you're doing. That needs to be conveyed to them immediately. Time is of the essence with sepsis. It moves through the body so quickly and shuts down organs faster than you know what happened. I woke up in a coma after 18 days. I thought I was sleeping maybe a couple hours. I had no clue. When I looked down, I had black feet. And I thought, how in the world did this happen to me? I'm at the top of my game as a nurse in long-term care. I take care of 150 um, staff members, 286 residents. I have a 14-year-old daughter, and I'm looking down, and I have black feet. Like, how did this happen to me? And I just can't, I can't emphasize enough to everyone that it is rapidly moving, rapidly. And... You know, the faster you get somebody attention, medical attention at a higher facility to work on that sepsis, the better off they'll be. And if you have to post posters around your building on the symptoms of sepsis to get everyone to learn it from the families to the loved ones to the clergies to the volunteers, everyone has an important part in that cog of that wheel. Everyone should know the symptoms of sepsis. Absolutely. We agree with you. We can't agree with you more. Everyone should know. And through this um, program, 
Uh, I'm sure that people, uh, clinicians and the public and our global listeners know a lot more than they did and, than an hour ago. And Sherry, we thank you and Dr. Garrett and Dr. Flatley for joining us and, and helping us through that today. And Sherry, we're going to continue at, on asking you questions. And um, let me ask you, are there any current vaccines available to prevent sepsis? Um, not for sepsis, but I will encourage those that, um, you know, because sepsis can come from any infection, as Dr. Garrett said, it's really important that you get your flu vaccines, your pneumonia shots, your shingles vaccines, all of those vaccines that are available to you to get those because you can get sepsis from any infection. Like they said, a pierced ear, a tattoo, any infection can lead to that. So no, there's not one thing to prevent the sepsis from occurring, but there are ways to keep yourself healthy and prevent infections, and that's what everyone needs to do. Okay, and Sherry, before we close today's show, do you have any closing comments you'd like to share with our global listeners? Oh, boy, that's opening off everything, huh? Um, really? Yeah, I mean, I just want, I want them to, to really believe that when someone does have sepsis and they're telling you that they are, you know, very cold, I mean, I felt colder than I've ever felt in my life, even though my temperature was 105. Um, the pain and the tiredness you feel are something that you never, ever forget. I was so lucky to have lived through all of these things. And, you know, uh, but I have to tell you, living through them was a struggle. And I was very lucky not to have post-traumatic stress. But I want people to realize that sepsis affects you for the rest of your life after you've had it. And that many people suffer from post-traumatic stress or generalized pain from having nerve damage, reflex sympathetic dystrophy from having amputations. Sepsis does not leave you without a tattoo of itself. So you really need to find out what that person has if it is post-traumatic stress. Encourage them to see a counselor, a clergy, or whoever they feel comfortable talking to about it. Leaving them at their own risk is not healthy for anyone, you or them. A lot of people that have had post-traumatic stress because of sepsis have taken their own lives. And we need to intervene and get people help. You know, and it's not always a psychiatrist or psychologist that an 80-year-old guy who's been in the Marines for 30 years will go to see. Maybe it's just another man that's been in the Marines that he needs to talk to. So just because a clergy works for one person, a clergy may not work for another. So whatever people are comfortable with, that's where you need to lead them to get help. They say all all roads lead to Rome, but they they lead in different ways. We all know through our little uh, map navigation systems now, there are 50 ways to get there. So long as they're happy at the end and getting to Rome... It doesn't matter how you get there. It's the end result that we want. Exactly. 
And Sherry, we, you know, we tip our hats to you. We are grateful that you're here with us. And um, we're going to close the show at this time. We can't thank you enough for being here with us with um, Dr. Hudson Garrett, Jr., Dr. Carl Flatley. And we thank you all for being on this week's episode of C. Diff Sports and more Global Broadcasting Network to discuss sepsis, knows no boundaries, it can happen to anyone. For more information on organizations working diligently, raising sepsis awareness and helping others around the globe, please visit Global Sepsis Alliance at www.world-sepsis-day.org, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, www.cdc.gov forward slash sepsis forward slash and Sepsis Alliance, which is sepsis.org. Join us every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, as we discuss up-to-date information with topic experts and organizations focused on C. difficile infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety products, and much more. We send out our get well wishes to all of our patients being treated for, for and recovering from C. difficile infections and all wellness training illnesses across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corrala, and until next week, None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. Thank you again for joining us this week on Siege of Spores and More Global Broadcasting Network. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. C. diff, spores, and more is brought to you by Clorox Healthcare, trusted solutions for your infection prevention needs. Visit us on the web at cloroxhealthcare.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.